Hey everybody, happy new year, and welcome to the Offshore Insights Podcast, where we share captivating individuals and stories connected by water. I'm your host, Devin Luth. We're stoked you could join us today, and I hope you enjoy your listening experience. Srini was notably on his way down the path to following a well-organized, well-vetted, and most importantly, well-defined roadmap towards the world of success. In 2008, having just turned 30, he found himself on a crowded beach in southern Brazil, bored, buzzed, and alone. So he decided to give learning to surf one last shot. At the time, completely unaware that this experience would go on to shift the trajectory of his entire life. Thus far, he had subscribed to the societal norms and cultural expectations that his family and peers so passionately instilled in him. Now, for the first time in many years, Srini was abroad and adrift, and as a result, he encountered an experience that would flip his world on its head, causing him to question the very belief systems that he had come to accept as truths. This time, he had learned to surf, and more importantly, upon riding his first wave, he had experienced unparalleled joy. Now he was faced with a bigger challenge, one that we've all very likely experienced before, and possibly the biggest of all. He had to decide what to do with a blank canvas. And while navigating a blank canvas can be overwhelming for the artist, he now had to sell the investors and curators of his life's work on his new concept of unmistakable art. And to talk about it with us, we have special guest, author, podcaster, avid surfer, and good friend, Srinivas Rao. What's up, Srini? How's it going, man? Good. Thank you very much for, uh, for taking the time to join us Absolutely. on the Offshore Insights podcast, episode number one. And what a appropriate place to record a podcast called the Offshore Insights podcast. I figured as much as well. Overlooking the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, was, uh, it actually was kind of coincidental because I had run out of uh, other spaces to think of that would have been free of ambient noise, but I was like, you know, I wouldn't really want to pick a better spot anyways. Yeah, this is perfect. Yeah. Well, um, congratulations on the success of your book. Thanks. Um, I really enjoyed reading it. It was definitely uh, refreshing for me to pick up a book and, and just flow through it that quickly. Um, something that I, I needed personally, but also I think it just the timing that you created that in made a lot of sense. Very cool. Yeah. Um, so I kind of wanted to just start from there and talk, uh, you know, specifically about the thing that inspired you to write the book, you know, kind of your catalyst in a way, yeah. um, which was your experience in Brazil and learning how to surf there. And I essentially wanted to see if you could take us through that experience um, and kind of describe the scene to us a little bit, kind of sure. set, set, you know, your world in that, in that moment, um, but also specifically kind of what you thought that experience was going to be like going into it yeah. compared to what that was like in retrospect, you know, having gone through it. Yeah, I mean, so we, I think we have to start a little bit earlier than yeah. um, the actual you know, moment um, when I, I caught away for the first time. So, you know, I spent a semester uh, in Brazil, uh, the summer, uh, the fall semester of uh, my second year of business school. And it was weird because I, I think it was, it was, you know, kind of like a, a paradoxical experience because the entire time all I did was sit on the beach. You know, and pretty much everywhere I went, all I did was drink. And to this day, that pisses me off. You know, <laughs> I'm like, man, I'm like, right. you know, it's like all these amazing potential surf spots. And all I did was sit on right. the beach and get wasted. And, and um, so, 
you know, we were traveling quite a bit um, because of, you know, when you're, you're doing a study abroad, you really don't have to do a whole hell of a lot academically. It's right. just pass and you're, you're good to go. Yeah. And so we were spending a lot of time, and, and you know, if you're in Brazil, most of the traveling is to really cool beach towns. Hmm. Uh, so like the first few times, uh, you know, we went to the north of Brazil where friends took a surf lesson and, you know, I got a board and rented it, couldn't stand up. Uh, even you know, even the summer before, I had taken a lot of les a lesson and, and paddled out a couple of times uh, here in San Diego. Still couldn't stand up. And what happened was that, you know, the very tail end of our trip, we all went down to the south of Brazil because you know, uh, being below the equator for them, the summer starts in December, so the south is really cold and not an ideal place to be until about December. Gotcha. And so we, you know, went to Florianopolis, which is pretty much the the sort of surfing capital of Brazil, and. Uh, you know, there I was, you know, running boards, still kind of flailing around and falling a lot. And then um, what happened was you, uh, we were, a bunch of my friends and I were supposed to spend New Year's Eve together and they all ran out of money and uh, they were all from Denmark and, and, you know, the United States. So they all went home. And I ended up being stuck with this guy that, you know, we didn't really vibe. I, you know, it wasn't he was a bad guy, but we didn't vibe very well at all. It was kind of boring. And especially, it was hard because, you know, you spent six months with these friends you were in school with, and now you're basically hanging out with a, somebody who's more or less a stranger for the rest of the time. But the one thing he liked to do was surf. And so after... You were, know, you, were you stuck with him? I mean, was pretty he assigned much. to the group or something Yeah, like I mean, that? he came along with us, but it was kind of like, okay, he, he was the only one left. Right. It was either going right. to be me by myself or me and him. Yeah. And so we ended up spending New Year's Eve um, and the last sort of week in uh, Brazil together. And, you know, it, it, was, it was weird. You know, we, like I said, it wasn't that we didn't get along, but we didn't have, like, you know, we weren't close, like, at all. It was right. kind of strange. But he liked to surf, and I was kind of fed up with sitting on the beach. And this was December 31st, 2008. You um, were going to a big New Year's Eve party that night. And you know, we're like, okay, what are we going to do for the morning? It's like, yeah, let's get in the water. And uh, so we go, and this very old uh, Argentinian guy who looked like, you know, Steven Tyler after <laughs> he had become 75 years old, uh, you know, rented us a surfboard. And, you know, I paddled out. And I, I thought, you know, this will just be another run-of-the-mill day. And uh, instead, I ended up standing up, and it was sort of magical. I mean, I think for anybody who's ever experienced that moment for the first time, you kind of know that something really special has happened and you kind of start to see, you know, that, wait a minute, this is going to change everything. Like, this is a defining and transformative moment in my life. And it was almost like I could just see, you know, this is my life before surfing, this is my life after surfing, and wow, the, de the decisions I'm going to make about how to live are going to be radically different Wow! now that this has happened. Yeah. So we got out of the water. Um, and were you self-aware of that? in the moment of or was this more I think of like in a, it, that you kind of look at in retrospect and you realize it but I knew in that moment that something really special had happened because I, I just what I remember getting out of the water with was this feeling of just pure bliss like god I'm like you know there's so many things that I'm not happy about like I'm not happy that I'm going back to school and you know and going into a recession um, you know there are a lot of problems in, in my life that haven't been resolved and you know I, I dealt with depression on and off for, for years without really knowing it and it was kind of like you know, the water could make all that go away. Mm. It was, a, you know, one really good wave could kind of transform that, you know, feeling of, of being down into like a feeling of bliss, which, you know, you know all too well from having done it for so, sure. so, such a large part of your life. Yeah. And I, I could just, I could see that this was like the path to a, a much sort of more fulfilling and, and happier life. 
right. even though the, the productivity of it could be questionable. What do you think it was specifically about the experience of riding wave that, I mean, you, you describe it as, you know, unparalleled joy and, and, and truly magical. I mean, obviously there's, I'm sure you've had time to think about it since, you know, but yeah. there's something unique about it and were you ever, ever able to put a finger on that? Yeah, that came with time, but the, in that moment, the biggest thing that really struck me was, you know, I had a relatively bad stomach problems for years and, um, you know, digestive issues. And, you know, doctors would tell you there's nothing you can do about this. It's just stress or anxiety or whatever. You know, it's, it's frustrating to go to a doctor and be like, there's nothing wrong with you. Go home. Right. And when that, when I saw that, wow, wait a minute, like this pain that I've been feeling in my gut and this heaviness was gone after surfing, that was what really kind of hooked me to it was I was wow. like, wow, this is the cure. Like this could be a cure all for that. Right. And then it just became, then it became, the more I did it, I think the, the more I got to see that this was this very therapeutic thing. Um, I think the other thing that was unique about my surfing experience was that, you know, like most people, I mean, you learn to surf as a kid, right? I'm, you know, I'm 39 years old. I learned to surf when I was 30. Right. And most people who learn to surf as an adult don't really get to put in concentrated time into the water, right? Sure. They kind of, you know, yeah, I mean, your learning lives. curve is going to be steep if you're 30 years old. Like, you're not going to get relatively decent really fast. I had a period post business school, you know, I graduated April 2009 and, you know, we're in the midst of a recession and um, when I came back from Brazil, I was interested, like interested enough that I bought a surfboard, I bought a wetsuit, but where it really started to kind of consume my life was after I graduated from business school uh -huh. um, because I didn't have a job, I didn't have anything else to do. I was like, yeah, this is a perfect hobby for an unemployed person. It takes a shitload of time and it doesn't cost money. Right. Um, but what I got to see also during that period was that what should have been one of the darkest chapters of my life was balanced out by this thing that, you know, could, you know, keep me consumed every day. Like, right. it just made everything better. Like, I was, I was kind of like, wow, everything that I thought I was so worried about. And, you know, my mom was worried. She's like, it doesn't seem like you're interested in finding a job or anything else. And, you know, it's <laughs> weird because uh, the, the, this bizarre hobby that, you know, you could claim caused me to make a lot of irresponsible choices has played an integral role in the career that I've built now. Sure. You know? Yeah. It's so strange to think that. And, uh, and so at that point you were aware, as, as you say, that it was becoming a way of life. Yeah. It was very clear that this was not just something I did on the weekends right. or it was like, Oh, this is a hobby or this is, you right. know, this is something I do when I'm bored. It was like, no, this is, this is life defining. Like yeah. it, it's not, this is not a hobby. I think, you know, you being a surfer, you, you really understand this is that, um, you know, I think that for some people, the things that they do are hobbies, they're, you know, activities, they're, you know, just li lists of things that I've done. I think for people like you and I, you know, and, and I think a lot of surfers is that it's, it's actually a deep part of their identity. Like, right. you know, I feel like without this, like, a, I'm like, who am I without this? You know, like it's a hu such a huge part of my identity that it would be like a, almost a, a tragic loss if I couldn't do it. Like I wouldn't. I'd have to do some real soul searching to figure yeah. out who I was. Yeah, it's yeah. become an integral part of how you identify. I mean, yourself. you and I are friends largely. I mean, it was kind of like yeah. we had this instant bond because we yeah. could talk about this. And yeah. I, and I've noticed that with you know anybody who surfed, it was always like the moment you mentioned it, it was just like uh -huh. boom, that's it. Like you, for it, it's unlike any other sport. Like I don't think you know people who play tennis have that sort of tribal. Hey, we gravitate yeah. towards each other, or you know people who play golf. Maybe they do. I don't know, but I. I never seen it, you know, I have friends who play basketball with, but it, it never was the kind of thing of, oh, you surf, like, right. 
automatically you it's know, almost akin to finding someone who speaks the same obscure language that yeah, you do and you're absolutely. like no shit you speak Mandarin well, <laughs> and, and the thing not is, that Mandarin is obscure but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. locally speaking I would be shocked yeah, yeah. It, it's well the thing is I, you know I, I always say like when you describe it to a person who doesn't do it you sound like a fucking lunatic right you know right. And, and it's it's you know and that's the thing it's like the only people who really understand it are people who've experienced uh-huh. it like, yeah and I think that that speaks a lot to how it maintains a counterculture place you know, is that it's a very, um, in, in ways, it's very isolated from most people's lives. I think know, the counterculture aspect of it also really appealed to me because it was kind sure. of like a giant fuck you to like society uh-huh. at large. Yeah. Not that I'm like one of those aggro surfers with like tattoos who yells at people or anything like that, but I did like the rebellious nature of it. I think it appealed to my disdain for authority. Yeah. The other well, thing, and I would imagine it, it, it probably helped you to find a bit of that balance in your life because yeah. it sounds like, you know, prior to that experience, you know, you had been on a pretty, you know, uh, well-prescribed path, you know. Well, there's that. And, you know, I think the other thing that really appealed to me about it was that, and this is, I think, board sports in general, um, is that it wasn't one of those sports where your shitty performance ruin the performance of everybody else involved is like if I surf poorly right. you know, and you're having an amazing day in the water not going to make a difference right. if I surf poorly like you're yeah. still going to have an awesome day and I really liked that about it because it was kind of like okay that means the only person I'm really competing with is myself sure you know like I don't see you know I'm not trying to compete with anybody else in the water right like all I'm trying to do is do better than I did the day before and, and I think that really appealed to me um, and conversely, you could both be having the most epic yeah, session. Exactly. You know, I mean, it's, and especially if you're a kid who grew up, you know, playing team sports and wasn't good at them, like you know, I was. I mean, right. I grew up ironically believing that I had no athletic ability, which is weird considering. But to do this in in your when you're almost forty years old right. is kind of the antithesis of not sure. having athletic ability. Yeah. Yeah, you've certainly uh, dissolved that belief. <laughs> yeah. That I don't believe anymore. Yeah. Well, what do you think it was? Um, you know, uniquely about that experience of learning to surf that in some ways seemed to be presenting you with um, a blank canvas more so at that point in your life maybe than at other points in your life prior. I mean, you, you talk specifically about, you know, it allowing you to dissolve your attachment to these powerful belief systems, sure. you know, and how, you know, how, how unique that is. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the thing that really, you know, it, it does is... For, you know, like if you look at the prescribed path that most of us are on, it's the antithesis of presence, right? Like, you know, there's nothing present about being told, go to school, get a job, go back to school and get a better job. Your whole life exists in the future when you're living that way. Like it's always the next accolade, the next milestone, the next degree, the next promotion. Mm-hmm. And I think what, you know, in dropping into a wave does is it, it it really brings you like into this moment of presence and even when you're in the water right you're anticipating a next wave but it's kind of like you live in the moment and keep your eyes on the horizon and there's very little room to to spend time in the in the future in the past when you're in that kind of an environment that is that consuming so when you have that i think when you have like real presence the world when you have real presence you start to see like you experience quite literally the fact that the future is unwritten right Right. And I don't think we see the future as unwritten because we're always planning for the future. We're always trying to write the future. We're setting goals. We're doing all these things. I think for the first time, because I saw presence, I was like, wow, I'm like, the future really is a blank canvas. Wow. And I don't think you get that truly until you, you have, you know, this moment of presence. And, I, it, you know, people find it in different ways. But for me, I think, you know, dropping into a wave for the first time was that experience. Yeah. I mean, that makes so much sense. You know, in many ways, 
because of the physical limitations alone, but not to mention the uh, you know mental space that it puts you into, that you, you just don't have time. You yeah. Know? You, you don't. And we have such a notion of, of having time, like you're talking about all this future planning and right. attachments, expectations, and all these you know best laid plans, right? But you know none of that is is yours, and none of it will is guaranteed to come. Well, the other know? thing is that you know it like you get out there and you realize it's in so many ways it's the ultimate equalizer of us all, right? Like in the water, everybody's just a chump who's taking a wave on the head. It Absolutely. doesn't matter whether you're like a billionaire or you know there's some surf bum. Yeah. In the water, all of, like that becomes completely insignificant. You know? Yeah, it levels the playing field of your social relationships. Like and, your status and means your, your social status means absolutely nothing. Doesn't mean shit. You yeah, know, and absolutely. that's it's such a refreshing you know experience. Yeah, when you, you get to yeah. see that because in every other aspect of our lives, our social status you know uh, it impacts our behavior, it impacts our choices, it impacts how people perceive us, it impacts how we interact with other people. Yeah, um, and in the water, that completely goes away. Right. I mean, you definitely talk about that, you know, and, and it's therapeutic ability to really, you know, absolve you of those concerns and, and things like that. Um, I mean, the, you know, this whole idea of, of that you talk about in the book, you know, of, of proving oneself against other people's judgments, you know, or yeah. attempts to discredit their own ideas. And I, I think that that's something, you know, on some level that we all deal with at times. Yeah, you know, of course. That, you know, do you, do you think it's that in some way we're all or at least many of us, kind of dealing with these concerns around our own so-called, you know, crisis of mediocrity, do you think people always have this moment, you know, of insight and decision awaiting them, you know, where they where they either choose to settle for the path of least resistance or they commit to the paddle out and, you know, to make their own unmistakable mark in this world? You know, I, I think it's... Sadly, like, you know, you've seen the pattern over and over, like, you know, after interviewing 700 people, for some reason, it seems to me that we don't change unless something awful happens. Like, we need crisis for change, right? Like, mm-hmm. I, I remember this, this quote that uh, this graffiti artist told me about, and he said, you know, Soren Kierkegaard once said, all, you know, change is preceded by crisis, right? And, you know, for me, it was a crisis of, of you know, identity, a crisis of, of loss of, like, you know, expectation because, you know, I thought, oh, I'm going to get out of school, I'm going to have a job, and none of that was there. The only thing that was there was surfing, you know. Um, so I, I think that, you know, one, you need, you have to have change, unfortunately, and, and you have to have crisis for that change in so many cases. Yeah, can you change without the crisis? Absolutely. But for some reason, the crisis is a much more powerful catalyst for change. And, you know, it's, it's funny because... We want to go through life thinking we're not going to suffer in any way at all. We're going to, you know, everything's going to be perfect. And, and, you know, like every time, even, you know, when things do get perfect, inevitably it's going to be followed by crisis of some sort. And crisis is what causes us to transform and grow consistently. Um, so, you know, the, I think, but the other, you know, we're talking about judgments and expectations as well, right? I, I think the thing that is really... And this is hard to shake because it's so embedded into our culture. Like, you know, we're socially programmed to seek validation, right? Right. And we do it in big and small ways throughout our lives. Like, you know, we're validated in school for numerous things. If you're the captain of the football team, you're validated with the hot cheerleader girlfriend. If you're the valedictorian, you're validated with your acceptance to Harvard and being seen as the smart kid, you know? Right. Um, You're validated with good grades or praise from all the teachers or your parents. And then you go out into the world and, you know, you watch mainstream media, right? Mainstream media is very much the same thing. Like, we're 
so programmed to seek validation, whether that's through you know the people that we end up with in our relationships. Um, you know, it, it occurs on so many different levels, right? Like you, you know, if you're a guy, it's like, oh, you know, I'm validated because now I'm dating this really beautiful girl. Right. Um, then you know, once that's settled, it's like, okay, I'm validated because I have status with my career. Like I'm famous. I'm rich. I'm you know accomplished all these things and so it's weird and you know it's I think you're talking about undoing decades of social programming I don't think it's impossible I think it's impossible to completely undo it but I do think that what starts to happen at least for people who are where the I think where that crisis of mediocrity starts to come to an end is when people are like okay you know what there are only a handful of people whose approval in this world really matters. Sure. Um, why am I concerning myself with the approval of people who don't? And so often, we concern ourselves with the approval of people who will never live with the consequences of any of our choices. And sometimes that's even our own parents. Sure. You know? It's like, wait a minute. Yeah, you want this, but you're not the one who's going to live with the consequence of this decision. Yeah. And you're not, in a literal sense, dependent upon any of those people. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. In, in the second portion of your book, the lineup. You talk about how some people are rule followers and how you can either adhere to those rules and follow those pre-written rules or you can make your own. Um, I was curious what some of the parallels you've noticed are in surfing in relation to either defending or maintaining the status quo, you know, the etiquette, the norms, yeah. values, culture, etc. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, right? Like, you go into any lineup and you're kind of a newcomer, right, the first time and you kind of have to earn the respect of that lineup. You know, I, I think that really when it, it comes to making your own rules you know I met a guy in the water I remember last year sometime I was out of pipes and I was surfing and I was like this is really pissing me off I've like you know you know those days even after years of surfing you're like how am I doing this and I'm like I haven't caught a single wave and he had a really simple metric he said you know he's like here's how I, I quantify a surf session he's like if I got three waves that was a mm -hmm. good session so it makes it easy for yourself to, to walk out of the water right. satisfied. Yeah. And to me, that was a really good example of, of a, a rule, right? Because, you know, so many people go into, um, you know, like it's very easy to go into a surf session and have your metric be, okay, if I don't catch X number of waves, it was a shit session, right? Right. Whereas, like, you, you could catch four amazing waves. Like, I've had sessions, you know, um, where... I didn't catch a wave for the first two hours, and then I caught like six at the end or four at the end. Yeah. And those four were so good that I'm kind of like, that made the whole two hours worthwhile. Right? Sure. And so that's kind of one example of, of you know the rules that you make um, for yourself. You know, I, I think that uh, making it, it's funny. So you know, that's the parallel in the water, but I, I think where it's really more relevant is on land, right? Is that we what well, the competition is such an interesting idea and, and we get obsessed with competing and, and often you know what drives competition is rules but you know the, the sort of core argument of my book is make the competition irrelevant right and in all reality surfing is a really phenomenal example of a place where unless you're a pro surfer your competition is actually pretty damn irrelevant it Completely. really doesn't matter yeah you know and that's that's so refreshing about it you know so you really you know, like, who's to define what a really good ride is? Like, you know, like, right. what your style is when you drop into a wave, how you do certain things. Like, who makes those rules? Like, nobody right. other right. than you. Well, it, you know, that ties into, you know, that system or that principle that the, the surfer was talking to you about that day in the sense that, 
you know, if you, if you structure it in such a way where your your focus is contentment over, um, let's say, expectations to something less tangible like consistent progress or yeah. you know, your personal performance, things are highly subjective and really so conditional and out of your control yeah. that, that you're really setting yourself up for a loss. Well, that is know? a big variable that's out of your control because you're dealing with nature, right? right. So, yeah. So it's really kind of swimming upstream, you know, for, for people. And I, I know that I do this all the time. And I mean, I, God, I used to struggle with it so much when I was competing where, you know, that same mentality would transfer into my free surfing. And I had the just complete inability to let go of that. And, yeah. and I was like, well, well, people are expecting this of me. And, and, and oh, oh, now that I have this, you know, the sticker on my board, they're going to they're gonna judge me against that. And if I, if I fall, then they're, oh, this guy's <laughs> bullshit, you know, or whatever it is. You know, and I was like, God, this is a fucking nightmare. <laughs> it's funny. I, I remember a girl, I don't remember who it was. It was one of my friends. And she was out somewhere. Um, and Kelly Slater was in the water. Uh-huh. And she saw him fall. Uh-huh. And he looked at her and he's like, what? Everybody falls. Yeah. <laughs> like, fair enough. I'm like, all right, man. Yeah. Like, There's something extremely cathartic about watching uh, pro surfers fall. Yeah. It really is. <laughs> like, and I think that's it, you know. It's like, it's okay, well, takes cool. Off the Kelly Slater is like good with falling, so am I. Yeah, yeah. It reminds you of, of the, the humanity that you share, you yeah. know. You're, you're still out there getting swatted around well, by the that's forces the, of you know, it's, the, the funny thing is, that's the weirdest thing about surfing, like, it's possible that you could be in the water and, you know, Kelly Slater is there with you. You're never going to be on a basketball court with LeBron James. No, Not in this lifetime. No. Or sharing a subway or <laughs> yeah, whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, absolutely. No, it's true. It, it is this kind of, um, I mean, I've certainly noticed a bit of a dichotomy in the culture where, you know, yes, it's this great social equalizer when you're comparing it to, you know, the on-land experience of what yeah. we've been conditioned and, and socialized to, you know, adhere to as far as norms, but... At the same time, it has its own, you know, intrinsic and native culture that has its own, you know, totem pole, you know, and it has its own do's and don'ts and, and, you know, all those kinds of things. So it's kind of funny because you go through this, like, full arc where you're like, all right, I've, I've left behind you know, the, uh, the stratification of, you know, judgment, you know, that I deal with on land and, and status and all these things. And you kind of have this like grace period of, you know, like, Oh, cool. Everybody is equal out here. And then you realize you know, you're, you're kind of on the shit end of the stick, Yeah. you know, in certain lineups and you're like, Oh, hmm, I'm kind of yeah. on the bottom now. <laughs> I've been in lineups like that before where I'm like, all right, I'm, I'm kind of the, the, you know, low man on the totem pole, but yeah. That's- yeah. But it's cool because, you know, at least in my opinion, and this is very subjective, but that totem pole is based in merits that I think are much more human. Right, right. And much more commendable in terms of what does raise you up. You know, it, yeah. it's more about um, do, you, do you earn the, the respect and the, you know, the right to, to interact with nature in that way? Have you, totally. you know, have you honored nature enough to, if you put in the time and the commitment, you know, are you respectful to your community members in the lineup? That yeah. sort of stuff, you know, which just, you know, it's kind of almost, um, you know, idealistic to expect that on land of people, <laughs> right. you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, as well in the second part of the book, you know, you talk about how quote, a, a limitless opportunity for self-expression is an essential ingredient to controlling my own destiny with surfing being, in my opinion, the most accessible and unique opportunities to explore radical self-expression. Um, how has becoming a surfer affected your own capacity, you know, to be self-expressive in everyday life? That's a great question. Um, I, I think that, you know, like, what you start to, to sort of see is that, you know, like, when you ride a wave, it, it's really yours and nobody else's, and that's such a unique sort of experience, right, is that 
this is a deeply personal thing. Like it, it's so different for every person. Like you know, you could have the same conversation with another person, and they may have a whole different experience and explanation of, of the feeling of, of surfing and, and you know um, what it's like to be a, a surfer. But I think that you know, as far as as translating to self-expression on land, I think the big thing that it does is it pushes you more and more out of your comfort zone, right? Every time you surf, you're you're getting pushed out of your comfort zone. Like you, you start out surfing two foot waves, and you're like, okay, I can do that. Now I want something bigger. Mm-hmm. And you keep challenging yourself and you keep pushing yourself, right? So I, I think this is probably the best way that I, I can actually sum it up. And this is something I wrote about in my upcoming book is that I think what happens is physical risks um, equip us to take creative and intellectual risks. It, for some reason, just translates. Suddenly, you know, you're like, wow, I dropped into an eight-foot wave and, like, writing a blog post that might piss people off doesn't seem like such a big deal in comparison. Right. You know, something that might be controversial or, or elicit, like, a bad opinion. You're like, ah, okay, well, uh, you know. Or, you know, you get caught inside the impact zone. You're taking 20-foot waves on the head. That's, you're kind of like, okay, after doing that, it's like, yeah, business is a little rough. We had a, a rough month. Not a big deal. At least I'm not about to die. You right. Know? So you get this really interesting parallel for life, I think, um, that that's what really facilitates the sort of, you know, full self-expression that comes from being a surfer is, you know, you're, you're getting an experience of numerous things that are just in, incredible, valuable life lessons, right? Like, you know, taking wave after wave on the head, you know, getting beat up, which is, is pretty sort of a, a profound metaphor in my mind for the adversity that we all go through, um, you know, taking a chance because when you drop into a wave the one thing that we all all we know is that this thing is uncertain it might look perfect you know like I can't tell you the number of times like I've seen like you know this perfect looking corner and I'm like oh this is gonna be amazing and it doesn't open up and you go tumbling <laughs> you're like what the hell like and, yeah. and those moments are gnarly because you know I remember thinking that you know I told a friend I was like you know when you first start closeouts aren't nearly as scary as when you actually know what you're doing because you're always just like all right I'm gonna go par-, you know you're going straight but when you're trying to go parallel and you find yourself with nowhere to go and you know the you board comes the power flying stars. out from under you you're like oh my god yeah um, but that uncertainty I think is is another place that you get equipped for for full self-expression because you really don't know every single wave is really kind of a it's a leap of faith, right? Every, I mean, even you, when you surf, you know, much bigger waves than I do, like every time you probably know, you know what? There is always the possibility that this is not going to turn out. Well. Absolutely. But the thing is, the fact that it is so uncertain is also what makes it so exhilarating, right? Oh, 100%. Like if, it, if, if you knew it's how it was going to be every single time, then it wouldn't be interesting. Nah. That's, you know, I don't remember who it was. I don't remember where I heard it. It's like, that's what keeps you coming back for more. It's different every time, you know, like every single wave you ride is different. And you know, like when I, when I, I remember thinking about this, you know, I was hearing Kelly Slater in a documentary talk about it. He's, you know, these waves come from like thousands of miles away, like in the middle of the ocean. And he's like, and it's all that energy. And all that energy is concentrated on just you, you know, this one person that like, there's no way that can't turn into, there's no way that that can't manifest as a desire for, self-expression yeah i mean if that's you know if that's not truly magical and what is right i mean exactly you know, there you are harnessing you know the energy that is from something that came from, from literally yeah like you don't even think about that often yeah. you're like okay wait a minute this actually started like way the hell out in the middle of nowhere yeah yeah it's funny along those lines that was just reminding me that that i often not oftentimes but periodically will catch myself you know 
cursing the wind or, you know, <laughs> yeah. cursing the tide or something like that. Ah, oh, it's fucking wind, you know, it's not optimal or whatever, right. whatever wherever I wanted. But, you know, the fucking waves were caused by the wind. And, yeah. and you know, the, the tides are the way they are. But, you know, it's like everything, all, all the, there's no element that you can separate well, that's and the, have it still turn out the way that you Well, and that's, that's the other be. thing, right, is that, you know, I think the ability to express yourself is also about adaptability. And, and, you know, surfing teaches you to adapt constantly to the conditions that you're in. Like every moment you're adjusting to the environment. I mean, even, you know, I, I don't remember where I wrote it or I said it, but like if you look at the, the process of riding a wave, the whole time you're just adjusting to what the wave is doing. Yeah, you're you know? reading. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. kind of like, okay, what's it going to do, you know, two feet down the line? I'm like, okay, how am I going to adjust my feet here so I get through the next section without falling off? You right. Know? Or like, you know, how do I do whatever I need to do to get through this? Yeah, there's, there's very little uh, service to any preset, yeah. you know. Exactly. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't serve you well. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I I would be butchering it to try and paraphrase it, but there was some some quote from an old uh, surf movie where Tom Curran's talking about that in, in his very kind of trippy stoner esoteric way of, of you know, well, you're just you know the waves telling you where to be, you know, and you just read the way. And, and I mean, yeah. as silly as it is to say aloud, it, that, that is the experience. You know, you're, you're just there responding to the stimuli. You know, you're just there trying to be as present and aware you know and reactive as, as quickly as possible it's, yeah. it's wild yeah i don't think you can really mimic that anywhere else in nature it's special um you know y- you talk about that you know this this kind of catalyst for for uh, you know this pivotal life moment for you uh was something that set in over time and you talk about how you didn't become you know unmistakable until 2014 you, know, you right. say it took four years and I was curious if you could just talk to me about that process of your evolution during that time and, sure. and why it wasn't, you know, more immediate or overnight for you. You know, I, I think that um, the, the whole process of becoming unmistakable is, is really a process of, of shedding years and years of layers and masks and stories, right? And all of those come from decades of social programming. And so I think what, what happens is bit by bit, you know, you're, it, it's kind of like the process of surfing bigger and bigger waves in so many ways, right? So you, you dare a little more greatly each time, right? I, I love Seth Godin. He says, you know, you, you ship something out in the world and then you do it again, maybe a little louder, maybe a bit bigger. And you keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bolder and bolder and bolder. And there's a certain point at which that boldness is like the most authentic expression, right? Because you're no longer, um, you're no longer doing things in hopes of eliciting a response, but you're doing them because like you can't not do them and this is mm-hmm. this is who you are. Like it's I think the, the best way to describe it is there's like a, a deep congruence between your work and, you know, um, who you are. Like it's kind of like, okay, this is this is, you know like the expression is is so clearly you uh, in everything that you do. Yeah. Like there's no question, you know, that okay, like this is this is my voice. Like, you couldn't mistake it for somebody else's. Sure. Um, and I, I think what happens as a result of that process is that you become much more courageous in terms of, you know, doing things that couldn't work. You know, like I said, you know, it's, it's like challenging yourself to surf bigger and bigger waves. Like, like, I know for a fact that when I'm in the water day after day after day, if I'm there for four or five days in a row, by day five, it's a whole different ballgame. Right. Um, and, it, you know, and that that is the process of mastering craft to the point where you know you you're building skill level and as you build skill level it becomes much easier to start taking the kinds of risks that actually start to 
show up as a, a really authentic expression of, of, of who you are. Yeah, no, that makes complete sense. I mean, you have no other choice at that point. <laughs> yeah, and, and the other thing is, like, you know, part of it is that you, there's no way that you can just wake up and say, okay, how do I, how do I, you know, become, how do I figure out, you know, it, it, like, if it was formulaic, it wouldn't be unmistakable, is what I always say, right? Sure. So there's no formula for it. Um, but, you know, it, it requires a lot of trial and error, a lot of figuring out. I mean, you know, flailing and, and thinking, okay, how do I do this? How do I, how do I not screw this up? You know, it, or more importantly, how am I, how do I become okay with screwing up? Like, right. I, I think there's uh, something Seth Godin often says, one of my favorite sort of phrases from him, you know, that he talks about with any creative project, which I think has been hugely influential in my thinking, was this notion, he says, you know, anytime I do something, I say to myself, this might not work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and, and the, the result of that has been, you know, some big gambles on our part, um, you know, things that people think we're crazy for. I mean, I sent you a blog post this morning and nobody spends that much time doing illustrations for a free article on the web. We do. Yeah. You know, um, mainly because, and, and it's kind of like, well, why would we want to do that? I'm like, because I'm like, it's fun. It's, it makes us real. And that's, you know, it's like, I just was like, this is so much cooler this way. Well, and it seems like you're, you know, you're creating what you would want to consume. Yeah. You're creating, you know, you're enjoying the process of the creation, but it's also, you're, you're doing it for you. Yeah. I, I think that when you start to create what you would want to consume, suddenly, you know, your work starts to take on a very different feel. Right. Right. No, that makes, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, the apparentness of that is, is so clear when yeah. you know the difference between people who are really adhering to a you know a formula or Absolutely. something like that versus something that's just genuinely from the heart and spontaneous you know and, and I think you can, you can sense it like yeah. I think anybody who consumes that work can sense that okay this was made with the intention of I just want to make something amazing sure you sure know? like yeah. I want to create things that I'm proud to put my signature on yeah it's a spirit of giving yeah. you know more than taking yeah. You know? yeah yeah I mean it really is like I mean and that's the thing like I think when you do creative work like the first thing you always think is okay is this am I am I making a gift for the world is, is kind of you know the way I think about it every time it's a great point to start from yeah <laughs> uh, so in part five of your book the impact zone yeah uh, you delve into some pretty personal and vulnerable experiences. Uh, you describe finding yourself in vicious cycles of, you know, self-induced, you know, self-inflicted negativity and feelings of depression and even getting to the point where you're feeling suicidal at times. Um, your experience going through these difficult, you know, or dark times or, or what you call whitewash, you know, in the book, mm. um, it sounds like they'd cause you to question your new direction and even consider giving up on all the work you had done thus far. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm just curious you know, how you dealt with those suicidal and dark feelings yep. as to how you pulled yourself out of it mm. and was surfing a component of that. You know, it's interesting. Um, so surfing was a component, but the, the problem that, you know, amazingly enough, one of the, the biggest, clearest signs of depression is that if something that once brought you joy no longer does, that's, that, that's a really scary moment in your life when you're like, how is it that this thing that could constantly refresh me. I mean, it was funny because during part of that period, I actually lived in Carlsbad and I, I thought, you know, like I, I hardly ever surfed. Like I barely got in the water that whole time. Right. And it was kind of amazing that I could be two minutes away from the water and not have any desire to get in the water. Or even when I did it, it was, it, you know, it was in such a bad place that it wasn't doing the trick. So a couple of different things, you know, I think that um, therapy made a big difference. Uh, therapy, community, like and commu by community, I mean, not, you know, sort of, hey, I have a Facebook group that I can vent my problems to, but like real friends, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I were talking today about the sort of role that technology has played in, in creating almost a, 
like a, a dystopian way of living that you know we have to really consider what these tools are doing not just to fabric of society but to our humanity you know we've taken because of the fact that people people and their avatars have blended so much that we've unfortunately been able to treat them as very disposable um, and I think for me you know having real you know relationships friendships I think that there are no moments that reveal you know, I remember who said it you know you, you learn a lot about you, who your true friends are when you, you know you have nothing to give to them you yeah. know and, and it's it's when you're in the darkest of times I think you'll find who your truest of friends are because it's easy to like you know cheer somebody on when they're kicking ass and taking names and everything's going perfect right right it's who's going to be there when that's not the case yeah that's who keeps the, showing up who keeps showing up when yeah. you know that's not the case and I you know I got to see the unfortunate sort of side of that where you know a girl that I was seeing long distance ended things with me mm-hmm. um, it just a lot of things all it was it was kind of hard because it was a bunch of things all at once falling apart sure um, very quickly and you know personal problems started to manifest as professional ones so like you got you know when both your personal and your professional life feel like they're falling apart it's kind of like being in the white water you're like in the impact zone you're like yeah, yeah. and it's kind of like you're in a 20 wave set and you're wondering when you're ever going to get back up for air sure well and i mean and you talk about how you know the irony was not lost on you that you know here you were running a brand known for inspiring people to live better lives you know in the midst of you know of suicidal, suicidal depression, depression yeah. you know and you know, I, I think that that speaks volumes to a just the, the constant flux, you know, that we go through as humans, yeah. but also, you know, the, that that battle between our avatar, you know, or, or exactly. our outward-facing, you know, external self and the mask we wear. You know? Yeah, and you know, no matter um, how vulnerable, transparent, or authentic we claim to be um, with the image that we present to the world it's still being done through an avatar, you know? It's still presented. And it's yeah. presented, it's curated, it's edited. You know, and I love this quote from Sherry Turkle. I'm going to butcher it, but she wrote a book called Alone Together, Why We Expect, you know, more from technology and less from each other. <laughs> and she said, you know, if you, anytime there's an opportunity to write, edit, and delete, there's also room for performance. Mm. You know, because and at the end of the day, like, you know, I, when I saw that, I was like, I got to question my own authenticity of this. I'm like, I got to be honest. I'm like, a good amount of the way I choose to share the work that I do is very much a performance. And, you know, that is not the person I am, I realized, with my closest friends. You know, right. it's a very different experience with somebody who's, you know, been in my life for a year or several months and, like, I see all the time versus mm-hmm. somebody who just knows me through the lens of this, like, you know, yeah avatar which is such a bizarre place to be in society yeah i mean even just the you know the difference between having to physically interface with somebody having the interpersonal communication you know you you're left with only one tool of communication which is language right but yeah. these words they're they're inert you know they're dead we give them meaning and but but they come and go and we don't really have any control there's no autocorrect in there there's no yeah you know uh whatever you know editing program to help you and and hence why a lot of people find themselves putting their foot in the mouth a lot you know but that's also you know a sign of humanity you know and i think that that's something that on maybe a little bit broader scale where we're also losing with it is our ability to you know to be human and to make mistakes as well you know we're so buttoned up in the way that we interact that we're forgetting that um you know we're all dealing with the elements here we're all just using the same biological systems to get through the same series of forces and you know Mm -hmm. kind of living out the same story over and over yeah (laughs) 
Um, I mean, I, I think it's interesting that, you know, you talk about abandoning your reservations and, and kind of embracing the unknown. And I think you put it beautifully when you, when you write that, uh, quote, a compass welcomes the unknown and the breadth of possibilities that come along with it. Ditch the map, grab a surfboard, and let the compass guide you unmistakably. In reference to that said quote, I was hoping you could basically make the argument for us as to why only is better than best. Yeah, so I think the map is really a, uh, a sort of perfect metaphor for, you know, the compass represents only, I think, in a lot of ways, and the map represents the best, right? Because, you know, what is a map, basically? It's a set of, you know, it's a set of guidelines to get you to where somebody else has gotten. You know, we're at the bottom of a trail, um, you know, doing this, and, and there's a map to get here, right? There's a certain trail that you follow. Now, the funny thing is that if you and I had never been here before, um, and we didn't know, it's entirely possible we'd end up in a really different place. Like, somebody might say, this is the best lookout point, which it is. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the thing is that if you didn't know, you could say, you know what, this is the only lookout point, and it's the only one worth seeing, because it's the one I found, it's the one that I ended up at. And, you know, I think that we spend so much time trying to be the best, but, you know, if you're trying to be the best at anything... I think you've already lost because, you know, I mean, this isn't, you're not playing team sports, you know, you're not doing that. If you're trying to be the best, you're all, here's the problem with trying to be the best is that there's always going to be somebody who's better than you are, you know? And there's always somebody who's going to be behind. There's always going to be somebody who's, you know, in front of you. There's always going to be somebody who's better off than you are and always somebody who's going to be worse off than you are. And I, I keep seeing this over and over and over again. And what we do I think our, our human tendency is, you know, like, I think it's almost impossible not to compare yourself to societal standards, other people, etc. Um, and, you know, when you, you come to this conclusion that only is better than the best, like, you really, you kind of realize, okay, this comparison is really fruitless. What am I going to get out of this comparison? Like, the comparison... I don't think fuels a healthy sense of competition. Instead, what it does is it fuels a huge, you know, sort of sense of insecurity and, you know, insignificance. And, you know, I mean, when you're the only person who does what you do in the way that you do it, I mean, it, it's amazing what opens up to you. you know, and I think we talked about my artist in the book mm. and how when we want something done by him, we don't shop, we don't, you know, negotiate prices. It's like, hey, Mars, we need this. How much does it cost? Like, nobody else can do what you do, so we'll pay whatever it is. And yeah. I think that, you know, the more that you can embrace that, um, I think the more interesting your life becomes. Like, your life becomes more interesting. And, you know, I think you really do end up being, you know, what I call a no-bullshit version of yourself. And, and you, know, I mean, we, you know, we all want people to like us. The problem is that when we go out of our way to craft an image and you know, be the best or be perceived in a certain way, what we start to see is just like, this is not a person who likes me. They like the image I've crafted. Sure. Um, and I think when you finally shed all those layers, you know, uh, people see you for who you really are. And that's, that, you know, that's unmistakable. Beautiful. I think that says it very well. That was fun. You got well, thank you of... so much for joining us. Dude, I really appreciate it. Awesome. Let's get you down off this cliff without killing you. <laughs> now we got an entire walk I have to get back, some insurance right? first. <laughs> now I'll take you up on that beer maybe. Yeah, all right. That sounds good to me. <laughs> That's going to do it for our show today, everybody. If you enjoyed what you heard and your time with us, please take a moment to subscribe and rate us on iTunes. 
You can find our episodes there or on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify. If you were turned on by anything in today's episode, please take the time to tell a friend or a loved one about the show. It's listener recommendations and support from people like you that make this show possible. If you think this show deserves to grow and or adds value to your life, you can contribute your support by donating on Patreon, an easy-to-use crowdfunding platform for creators such as myself. If you're interested in any of the guests or topics covered in the episodes, you can find further information about them in the show notes section on iTunes or in the blog posts on our website. Lastly, if you have any thoughts, questions, or feedback, any ideas for future guests or topics, you can reach out to me directly on our website at www.offshoreinsightspod.com. That's Offshore Insights, followed by the letters POD.com. Today, I'll leave you with a song by Claus Creative called Procreation. Until next time, be well, enjoy the ride, and keep in touch.